Welcome to episode 146 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Christina Selstrom. She and I served in the Air Force together. She was a major when I was a first lieutenant, and she was the first woman that I met who was higher ranking than me in the civil engineering career field, and she helped me when I left for my deployment by connecting me with a previous podcast guest, Stacy Shafran, where she was able to give me information about what it was like to be on a PRT. So Christina has been a mentor in my life, and I really admired her while I was in the Air Force, and it was really fun to get to talk to her about her experience in the Air Force. So let's get started with this week's interview. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Christina. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to see you again. We served in the Air Force together, so it's like a reunion party that you guys get to listen in on. So I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) So let's start with something that I don't know, which is why did you decide to join the military? Oh, goodness. My father served in the Air Force for two months shy of 30 years, whole thing, but uh, 30 years. And so I grew up an Air Force brat, moved around and kind of had that lifestyle already a little bit ingrained. I graduated high school at Alconbury in England. I went to Ramstein High School as well. So a little shout out for those Godia schools. You know, I did joke when I graduated high school and I got an ROTC scholarship. I did tell my dad that I'd already served 18 years and I was ready to go see the world. And he said, and how are you going to pay for that? (laughs) I was like, oh, that's probably a good thing. I have an ROTC scholarship. So that wasn't the sole reason, but that certainly got got me to the University of Colorado in Boulder, uh, Detachment 105. And while I was there, one of the big things I found was a sense of community. And uh, right away, I was kind of on the fence of whether I was going to continue or not. But I found a sense of community, a sense of home, because, uh, you know, having grown up on Air Force bases or around Air Force bases, being around people who were <laughs> Air Force or one of the Air Force, it was very familiar to me. So it helped being 5,000 miles away from my family to have a have a second home and instant friendships and something familiar. So that kind of probably started it. But there was always a sense of 
service and patriotism that I'd grown up with that I still wanted to continue. So it wasn't really that hard, even though I did joke with my dad about having already been there, done that. Growing up in Europe, especially, I was able to observe the U.S. and America from a, outside the fishbowl and see kind of some of the, the great values that we have and how we help nations across the world and yay democracy kind of thing uh, on that piece. So I've continued one to continue serving in that capacity as well as just service. I think it's important to give back to those who have gave so much on that part and do and do your part from there. So, and then adventure, keep referencing that lifestyle as a military brat, but the Air Force afforded my family an opportunity to instill a sense of wanderlust and adventure and to see new things and go new places and meet new people, especially that were different from me or different from where I'd grown up. And I just kind of wanted to continue that as well. And I saw that as an opportunity in the Air Force to be able to afford that lifestyle, <laughs> you know, one way or another, either because they stationed me somewhere or because I was somewhere and could easily get somewhere else. So kind of the whole of it started from, you know, maybe just having the funding, if you will, to, to do ROTC, to, to just really embracing it and wanting to, to be a part of it and continue. Because at any, you know, certain point, you obviously can quit and uh, move on. But I kept I kept it up. Yeah, and with a ROTC scholarship, did you have that like year window where you could decide after your end of your freshman year if you wanted to keep going? Right, yeah. So I actually ended up having to extend mine. So since I was overseas, I never got to do like ROTC interviews or anything. So I just kind of had the standard three-year scholarship. But once I got there, I was able to earn like a three and a half year. You know, have to do your first semester and then they'll increase it, if you will, to three and a half years. But yeah, so it was the first year you could say no walk away, no no money, no time requirement. And then the second year before you went to field training, you could walk away, but you just had to repay some money back. And then once you put into field training, yeah, it became a time and money commitment. So luckily, maybe I, maybe they, they purposely put me at the very end of the summer to go to field training because maybe they thought I needed more time or, or whatnot. But yeah, so I actually went to field training during the 96 Olympics. You know, so uh, Carrie Strag will always be in my mind for landing that uh that <laughs> the vault where she hurt her, her leg and whatnot because they they use that as a reason why we could never get tired on the run or on push-ups or anything like that so yay her <laughs> she really pushed us and, and was a good example on that and then the irony is is that my son's swim coach down here in the Keys is was actually in the 96 olympics for swimming so <laughs> i tell him that story too <laughs> yeah i remember that I was at a summer camp the week of that, that all happened. And I like love gymnastics and my parents recorded it for me. And it was before like technology. So I got to watch it like a week late and nobody knew anything about like, you know, I was a little kid. No one told me what happened, but. Yeah, we get to see it um, every once in a while. I think it's because we were in Tyndall, Florida and it would get so hot. Is They would put us in like the base theater and bring on the Olympics. PTU. Yeah, right before and after. They'd be like, all right, you're really sweaty and hot. We don't even want anybody to die on our watch. So we'll let you cool off. You can watch the Olympics, be inspired, and then keep going at it. So are there any other things from your time in ROTC that really stick out? I liked how you talked about it being home, which I found really funny because you're an Air Force brat, so it makes sense. But I describe the Air Force ROTC program as the same thing as finding like my home of like where I needed to be and what I was looking for. So I thought that was interesting from like two totally like no military experience at all. And you were like immersed in it. So it was really interesting. The people that that go for ROTC and in general, like any service or 
or whatnot all have a certain thing that's common between them and they all want everybody to succeed and and uh, innately have this sense of teamwork and acceptance. You know, it doesn't, you can be really nerdy, you can be the jock, you can be anything, but everybody ultimately wants to get commissioned and serve their country. So it's like, hey, come on in, you know, hang out. What are you doing Friday night? You going to PT? Have you been to PT? Yeah, and so you are, you have a civil engineering degree and that's what you did Mm -hmm. in the Air Force. And so what was that process like joining the Air Force as a civil engineer? And this was like 98-ish, right? Yeah, I was supposed to be class of 98. I took a full five years because I really love Boulder <laughs> um, no, uh, to graduate. But actually, there's a story behind that. My ROTC scholarship segued into civil engineering and how I got there was uh, was actually in chemistry. No, sorry, physics. I wanted to be a chemistry major. And so it was in physics. So I was like, well, I guess I'll change, but we'll see. And maybe, you know, maybe they can change it once, you know, it was kind of told once you got there, maybe they can finesse it into chemistry or whatnot. Otherwise you're stuck with physics or you can choose something else. And at the time they were really looking for engineers. And I kind of quickly realized that there's a lot about chemistry I like, but I didn't want to be in a lab coat in a lab all day. I wanted to be outside. Same kind of same with physics too. You know, you're, you're kind of inside all the time. And so I realized if I wanted to continue to have help paying for school, I needed to figure something out that there was a scholarship for. I really like international affairs and that piece of it, but there was no scholarships in it at that time. I know that since then they, they give a lot of uh, those kinds of language based ones out, but they didn't uh, when I was in school. And so, you know, my dad was an Air Force engineer, so I'd always been around it. And I do like math and science. I'd much rather be doing it. I'm very crazy saying this. I'd much rather be doing um, math problems than writing. You know, my worst growing up, I hated creative writing day because I would just, it would just be a blank piece of paper and I could never think of anything to say. So I really liked that. So I was like, okay, engineering might be the way to go. And then looking at all the engineering majors that were available, plus what was available, what that would translate to in the Air Force. I kind of just, again, floated back to civil engineering and, and a lot of classes were outside. A lot of the work is outside, a lot of hands-on that piece. So I kind of ended up flowing that way. I had so, and then, so that's one part of how I got into civil engineering. The other half of it is, is I was actually medically disqualified from the United States military completely for psoriasis right after my sophomore year. So it's after I went to field training. So it was kind of a weird purgatory moment there because it came up when they went to go get my flying class physical. And I'd seen a dermatologist at Langley Air Force Base my freshman year, I guess, of college. So when they did, when they figured out that I had psoriasis, they immediately disqualified me from the service. I, I actually was going through my medical records the other day and I had six stamps that said not qualified for military service. And I find that's the irony, right? <laughs> so, so I fought it and we got a waiver and got a waiver, but I had to be reevaluated for my psoriasis every semester, all the way up leading up to commissioning. When I got to, I had already been technically like the ceremonial commissioned and I still didn't know if I was actually going to serve. I had to wait for the approval to come through. And then the the crazy part is, is once I was commissioned and in the service, it didn't matter. It went away. It just also the reason that they didn't want, they were going to preclude me from service, I guess, is because it uh, made me not worldwide deployable, which is another irony, (laughs) ironic point. So you had done like five deployments (laughs) and uh, two different overseas bases. So we kind of worked through that. So I wasn't, I was no longer flying qualified. And that, that was kind of a bummer. I really wanted to be a pilot. 
on that piece. But uh, they said once I was commissioned, I could reapply. But as the story goes, I never really did that. But I really enjoyed what I was doing. And I didn't really feel like starting over. And I get really bad motion sick. <laughs> so probably wouldn't have worked out for me anyways on that on that piece of it. But yeah, so I finally got commissioned and found out I was commissioned. And then I went civil engineering. And I really wanted to go Red Horse. My dad was in Red Horse, the 819th. Let's talk about what Red Horse is because people are probably oh, like, yeah. what is she talking about? I know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a, a combat civil engineer squadron. Uh, they do heavy construction and go in uh, right after, you know, my, my Red Horse friends there out there, please comment and you can clarify for me. But certainly the the idea is the spec ops and, and army and, and whoever secures a, a location and then Red Horse goes in and makes, repairs the runway and creates any kind of vertical structures to support the mission until base civil engineers can come and, and do the rest. So I think I may have summarized that quite simply. But that was good. The, that was really yeah. good. <laughs> but they have air assault. They can come out of helicopters now. They can come out of C-130s or jump qualified and have some stuff that they can throw out of the back of the C-130 to get things started if they can't get there any other way or the plane can't land until they do um, spall repair or whatnot too. So they're, they're pretty cool. My dad was in Red Horse when I was born. And I, you know, I played a lot of sports in high school and, and whatnot. So I really liked the idea of getting out there and getting dirty. At the time, they weren't putting any second lieutenants in Red Horse, but they offered me to go to a base that had Red Horse. So my choices were like Florida, Vegas, and Montana. They wouldn't send anybody to Korea though. And those were the only three bases at the time that they had them. Little known fact, I actually for about a minute tried to try to get the Air Force to start a snowboarding team really got into snowboarding. And so I chose Montana so that I could snowboard, but then, you know, get to know the commanders and those notionally, if I, if I proved myself and, and worked hard and did a good job, I could possibly move across the base to the uh, 819th Red Horse Squadron and spend two years there and two years Bayside and then move on because the Red Horse is an assignment. Hopefully luck, the lucky people get to do more than one. Yeah. And I think you really highlighted how different the Air Force civil engineers are than the Army civil engineers, because the whole purpose of Air Force civil engineers is maintaining the base so that the airplanes can land. And like, mm-hmm. that's why the technical skills of like building vertical structure and you mentioned uh, spalling, which is little like potholes, like potholes, yeah. Yeah, potholes <laughs> in the runway and like all the different stuff. And like, I think the first year of being an Air Force civil engineer where you get to do your training and go down to Florida and do the like learning how to do all that stuff is probably like one of my favorite memories because it was like besides the mop gear stuff. But <laughs> and the no CMs. The no CMs were the worst. Yeah. But it's it's just really cool. Like the mission of Air Force civil engineers is just it's a really cool mission and I was talking to someone who was considering doing civil engineering. She's like, but I don't really like civil engineering. I'm like, well, Air Force civil engineering isn't the same as anything else out there. Yeah, it's like an onion has many layers, (laughs) but uh, it's very broad spectrum in terms of, you know, how... uh, diverse the experiences you can have you know you can get you can get very specialized you know get on the pavements of team, you know go get your master's in in horizontal construction and pavements and geotech and whatnot and really you know deep dive into that area or you can kind of still maintain a little bit of a generalist and and get into it all or the construction management piece of it you know if you're not a design person there isn't a whole lot of design but you can but then there's opportunities now especially where you can really deep dive into the design piece and exercise that that side of your brain and that muscle yeah so at your first assignment was that when September 11th happened 
That is. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was exciting. We were, so as we were at Mount Stewart Air Force Base and they had with the airborne, it's been a while now, what is it called? The, where they can launch all the nukes from the air, from the plane. It'll come to me. I'll think of the word, uh, the acronym, but the uh, airborne operations center. Again, someone, someone can correct me on that one. But uh, Mount Stewart does an exercise every year with that. And we actually happened to be in that exercise. Me and another second lieutenant, yeah, I guess I just pinned on first lieutenant. But uh, anyways, we were manning the command post and on opposite 12-hour shifts. But our shifts went from like noon to midnight instead of kind of a six to six or noon to midnight. And I just, I remember getting a call in the morning and, and Steve going, Chris, you can't come in for, you're not coming in for a while. How are you, first, are you awake? And you should turn the TV on. And I just remember sitting there like, whoa, you know, what? what is going on? And uh, my dad was stationed at the Pentagon at the time. So I was kind of worried about him. Luckily he was, he was TDY, but it come to find out later, he would go to the army general's office. Um, that was completely destroyed every Friday. And uh, so it kind of hit close to home on that one, but we stayed in command center ops because of the, the security fight for a, a missile base was high, probably through, I think like, been a while now, obviously, but I feel like it was months, November, December timeframe. So I worked, we worked out of the, he and I just stayed in there and worked out of the command post until one of our teams and he left for Diego Garcia. And then me and another lieutenant kind of kept, kept it going on that piece. But it was interesting because everything we wrote down in there was archival. So it had to be saved and, and put it in archives. So I wrote a lot of things like, see you rocks, <laughs> go buffs. He's the best. <laughs> I love that. Because, because nobody, they couldn't destroy it. That sounds like you. That's, that's <laughs> such a personality. I love that. That's so cool. So did you end up getting to transfer over to the Red Horse unit or were you still doing base level? I didn't. Um, it was a, you know, I had the opportunity, but I got to be really good at my job and programming. And so I was one deep. And uh, so it worked, it made more sense for uh, the base and the mission for me to stay where I was at versus, versus go over there. But then I spent my entire rest of my career trying to get back. So let's talk about your career and um, the different highlights from it and things that you want to talk about. Ah, certainly. You know, I, uh, I got to, I really got to feed that sense of wanderlust and, and adventure, you know, from Montana, I went to Korea, Kunsan. And went from there, and then I went to Spangdalem after that for three years, and then got to go to staff at ACC headquarters, and then I got to go do my ops chief where where we met in New Mexico at Holloman, and then I went back to the joint staff because, as you mentioned, uh, I got married while we were in New Mexico to a Navy guy, and he was stationed in Oceana, and at that point, you know, I was 12, 13 years into a career and was looking forward to a family and family life for all that matters. When I was in Montana, I deployed to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia for four months. It was interesting uh, to be there. I was there right before they took away wearing the whole uh, black outfit when you went off base. Got in trouble a couple of times because I didn't cover my hair. <laughs> not not huge trouble. Just the, the religious police would remind me kindly, maybe more directly, I should say, <laughs> to cover my hair. Me and another friend of mine, she had red hair, so we, we kind of stuck out a little bit. And then when I was in Germany at Spangdalem, I deployed to Kyrgyzstan for eight, seven, seven, eight months. It was really cold there, <laughs> but it was a gr that was a great time. There, I had an interesting job. I was the liaison for all the projects. We leased, we had like 52 land leases 
for the base and it wasn't very big to Manus. And and big part of my job is going and negotiating with the leaseholders when we wanted to do a project, any kind of project, especially if it's whether it improved temporary or changed permanently the area I had to go do. So I had a Russian translator and got to wear civilian clothes and got to go downtown every day or across to the airport and talk to the engineer over there and negotiate these projects. It was pretty neat because that translated into an opportunity to be on the U.S. delegation for the negotiation of the base that year. Um, so I got to go to the embassy and listen to the ambassadors and those guys talk. And I, t- I talked from the construction side of it and the money that was being poured in the lease and that piece. And so uh, it was kind of great to just be a fly on the wall for, to watch this whole State Department thing go down. There was like a New York Times journalist involved. And, you know, it was kind of interesting to see how uh, how that all worked out. And, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, that part, you know, I mentioned before, I really liked international affairs when I was in college. So I got to got to deep dive into that a little bit. So that was fun. And then I also, before that deployment, uh, I had gone in with uh, my team into Iraq, into Kirkuk, Iraq. We were the second ones there in 2004. That was, I tell, told people this, that's the proverbial, like when you're in ROTC training and you're going to go on a, you're taking your flight across the crosswalk and they're like, you just killed your whole flight because you didn't stop the road. You know, you didn't have a road guard. <laughs> you know, and you're like, what? <laughs> they're not dead. They're right there. And they're like, but you didn't have a road guard. So, uh, but in Kirkuk, I did all the flight line uh, projects and, and worked there. I did a lot of e-meds and some other stuff, but I was on the flight line all day, every day, all the time and uh, made it also a big target. So we got a lot of the rocket attacks, small arms fire and interesting things. So, and I'd have what, any one time I had like 10 security escorts, you know, with, at the time F- F-16s and and whatnot. And they'd all, they'd all look to me to be the road guard, you know, or to make sure a road guard was out there when these attacks would happen and, and getting down and, and avoiding fire and getting hurt. That was a very interesting time. This is a very combat, uh, combat oriented piece. So I have, I have a million stories. I could go on that one, you know, like me and another captain were coming back from the DFAC one day, going back to our offices in a truck. And, you know, I tell people, uh, some people that I'm really happy to be here because a 107 rocket landed right on the other side of one of the T walls. And if it had exploded, I'm not sure how much of me would be here. <laughs> and whatnot. So that, you know, that was a time where you just, you had to learn to persevere and rely on that training. And a lot of that training was good because um, it made it less scary, you know, and, and all that Air Force training and that combat training that we did beforehand and uh, being very confident with your own weapon and being able to defend yourself or know where to go and then know what to do, be calm in the chaos, you know, find that that place, knowing people are relying on you to put road guards out because <laughs> you don't want to kill your whole flight. <laughs> really came in handy. Uh, it was like three or four, four months. It was a four-month deployment, but it seemed like it was a long one. Brought our team together, our squadron, the officers. The officers were, the, were there. I'm really close to still to this day. So yeah, so it was a good time. But So that was in 04, but we were the second team, and Kirkuk is right up where they found Saddam Hussein. So there was you know a lot of pride with the Army guys. And going hanging out with the Army and seeing how whew, the rough conditions they had compared to us, we'd go play poker over there and and I'd be like, oh, you're in a bombed out building. I am, am not in a bombed out building. <laughs> Yay, Air Force. But they persevered as well. And they were, they were a good bunch. And then when I was at ACC staff, I deployed back to Iraq. I was in uh, Baghdad this time, down a FET. And I did it. That was a lot of fun, too, because we worked for the Army in that case directly, uh, much like you were with the PRT. So we were directly under them. 
to go do our mission. And we, again, you know, kind of highlighting the difference between garrison combat and combat engineers and in the Army and then Air Force civil engineers. We were experts at base master plans. And so a lot of the stuff we did was going in when I was in Baghdad is we not only were the garrison engineers for various places doing the making sure the lights worked and you can, you know, small construction. I want this room changed into this. I want a tent over here. I want a, you know, a temporary building over here. I need plumbing. I need this, you know, generators, AC. We didn't do the maintenance necessarily on that. That was a different type. That was Air Force civil engineers, but a different type of team. But we certainly planned it out and estimated it and worked with contractors as need be. But the fun part of that is the division would send us out to various FOBs in Baghdad or right south of Baghdad to do base master planning and see like master, you know, different things. We put strikers at this tiny FOB. And I went to FOBs that were as big as 800 people to some that were like a couple hundred. Some that were under constant attack, like, you know, you couldn't go out to the restrooms. Their their restroom shoes were outside, and you couldn't go out to the restroom between two and eight p.m. because of small arms fire and whatnot, and things might land on your head inconveniently at that time. And I, and then two days earlier than that, I was at a fob that was right on the Tigris, where they would close, um, they would open up the gates twice a day and let the Iraqi school children walk through because it was safer for them to walk through the base than to go around it. So just very interesting dichotomy of what you see and how you felt and where you went. I had a great opportunity to meet a bunch of army engineers and then go up to Erbil to help the Koreans move their facilities out of the way from Erbil International Airport. It was like planes, trains, and automobiles to get there. So I'd take a helicopter to Balad and then thirty and went another place. And then we got into another helicopter and ended up in Mosul. It was a great defect tour too. I was able to be like, oh, this one has good cheese bread. This one, <laughs> this, this is the one I need to go to for the good ice cream. And then that. Uh, and then we ended up in Erbil, which only had like 50 U.S. Army. It was mostly Koreans doing peacekeeping missions. And then they had a bunch of civilian police officers that were teaching the Iraqis how to do law enforcement from the civilian side. So it was just, but I had to learn my team as we went. And we had a great time. We had a great time. Those guys were awesome. And then I did go back to Afghanistan when that's when I missed the, you and I kind of like missed each other. So then I went to Afghanistan with the Army. Well, I was with a civil engineer squadron that was based out of Afghanistan, supporting the army mission. And that's also when you got married, right? Because you got married right before you left? Yeah, I did. I did. So, yeah, so my husband and I got engaged when I was moving to New Mexico, literally en route. And then we always wanted a summer wedding. You know, I I wanted summer or fall. I really wanted fall, summer. But he was still uh, assigned to a Navy squad, fighter squadron. And they were going out in a carrier and, as with all things that kept moving his carry up. And then I got tasked with going to Afghanistan myself. And he was leaving. It finally came down to he was leaving in May and I was leaving in August. And I I didn't have the time. I and mean, we didn't know this till really like early November. And I just, I didn't have the time to put any kind of uh, brain bites towards a big wedding between then and now. And I didn't want to be forced into it. But at the same time, I wanted to get, you know, orders and be able to get with him because at this point I'd lived a lot of life and I, you know, I'm not getting any younger. We wanted to have kids. And, and so to do that, uh, the Air Force, as you know, always needs something legal. He's a piece of paper that's legal that says this. And so we had done a half marathon in Virginia Beach before I, well, I'd come back and we did that. And the rock and roll had just bought the Las Vegas marathon. That so was their newest one and their rock and roll thing. And they joked uh, run through weddings. And so uh, we last minute decided to do a run through wedding. 
of which our boss, it was, he was awesome. He signed uh, permissive PDY orders on it because if you participate in what is, you know, if you training event or that's also an Olympic sport, you can get permissive TDY. But I didn't have to take any leave. It was great. And he flew, he, you should, one of these days, you'll have to hear his story of how he got out there because the Navy let him fly an F-18 out to Reno early before the rest of the squadron so that he could be there that weekend, get married. Because they were all leaving like Friday, Saturday, and he wouldn't have been. It was a Saturday. It was a Sunday morning race at that time. It wasn't what it is now. And so, yeah, so then we got married and he literally got on a plane and I got on a plane and we, you know, kind of carried on. But we spent pretty much our first year of marriage apart like our first anniversary he was in kandahar randomly and i was in kabul so we had ice cream over zoom that's what we're doing now so we yeah. did have a big white wedding in uh the stanley hotel in estes park in september of 2011 so we okay. did make up for it <laughs> yeah military life kind of makes things challenging especially dual military and you guys were two different services so it was like let's make it more and more and more complicated and try and like figure it out and civil engineers deploy a lot in the Air Force. So, like, at the time, they were, like, six months on, six months off. So, I actually, they tried to task me three times. I, I got back in March, and I was PCSing. I actually had PCS orders for June, and they tried to task me three times for July and August of that year. So I wasn't even going to be home for six months before I left again. But luckily, PCS orders, I was like, can't, can't send me again. <laughs> Crazy. That, but yeah. that's the way it was. We were gone all the time. Yeah, and that's kind of, I think that's kind of why, you know, I ended up taking like, a, it was GIFCOM. I was in GIFCOM for a month before it became joint staff. And I was in the J3. I was in the engineering side. And then the irony was, was I was sourcing engineers to deploy them. And it was helpful that I guess I had deployed, especially under such a joint environment, because I kind of knew the lay of the land with the other services, engineers, and how they uh, laid down their forces to be able to deploy them. But um, instead of going to like air staff, Probably would have been like the more natural progression, but you know, I wanted to roll the dice and see where I could go by actually living with my husband for the first time. And you know, because having a family at that point, I was you know 35. And were you able? You were able to get out a little bit early, weren't they? Doing something where you got to a chance to leave the military early and get yeah. So I got to I uh, qualified by whopping two months and 19 days for the uh, temporary early retirement authority and during sequestration when sequestration hit. And so I, I lucked out, you know, my husband and I just kind of looked at the tea leaves with him being Navy and, and whatnot. And, you know, our son at that point was a year and a half old and looking at more and it just kind of made sense. I got the full retirement except for 38% instead of 50%. Okay. <laughs> but everything else is the same yeah. that I would have gotten uh, with five more years. Yeah, because I think it's so hard to be dual military and then like dual service that makes it even harder. And then you add kids and like, you want to get to that 20 year retirement and then they made it so that we can, there's a new path forward. Um, you could get out. Yeah. So, and then the the irony, so I get out and then my husband decides that he was, he was attached uh, to a SEAL team at the time and the Navy had other ideas for him moving forward at that point. So he had, uh, he had, uh, he transitioned over to Air Force Reserves to fly F-6 in uh, Miami. So it was interesting. We both kind of don't ship at the top within two to three months of each other just to kind of change, change things up quite a bit. I, I joked it's two for one deal for the Air Force. 
That's really funny, especially that the timing, I didn't realize the timing was so close. Yeah, we had six, seven months where we were, you know, living off of savings and retirement. Luckily, you know, the retirement afforded us health care and, you know, tiny pension. And, and then you know, the VA stuff didn't kick in for a little while. But yeah, so we ended up like, I joked, I was like the only boomerang kid that came home with a retirement plan and a paycheck. You know, we ended up, I was like, well, this might be the last time we had a chance to really spend this much time with my parents. And our son was two years old and, and whatnot, and waiting for the reserve scroll and all that, all that stuff to kind of catch up so that he could go off to his F-16 training and be a, I think I commissioned, I commissioned him in my parents' kitchen. Oh, wow. <laughs> As a major. Yeah. And I, I got to interview you when I was doing my deployment series, which is where like this podcast started from. So I'll link to that in the show notes so that people can read. I feel like we touched on high points in those interviews too, but um, it'll give people more about your time in the different places that you were. And let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today and your husband's still in the reserves and you guys are living in Florida and mm-hmm. and you're working as a civil engineer, right? Sort of, yeah. Sort of. Uh, Close just, uh, sort of. Sort of, maybe, yes. Yes, most days. So we moved to Homestead Air Reserve Base, Miami, Florida area, South Florida, and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, I'm, there's some obviousness based on my background and stuff that I could do, but uh, I didn't have a lot of contacts down here. So I um, immediately kind of jumped into my local uh, Society of American Military Engineer post to meet people and kind of keep some of those skills, soft skills, if you will, going like networking and then just a little bit of project management. So I jumped into a couple of their big events to to manage those and whatnot while we kind of figured out what, where we wanted to live, live. We weren't sure if we wanted to go north to deep, what I call deep Miami, the Coral Gables, the downtown, the, you know, all the fun stuff, great restaurants and and whatnot, or if we want to move south to the Keys. And we ended up deciding to go to south to the Keys. So we live in uh, Alamorado Tavernier. So we're 40 miles-ish south of the base and then a solid 60. We're, we're good an hour and a half without Miami traffic to the Miami airport. So it kind of gives you a general idea. So that being said, making an opportunity to have a full-time job doing engineering project management or anything tangential to that difficult given his schedule with flying night flying and day flying and weekend flying and morning flying (laughs) you know all that stuff he doesn't like it when I say this I have to preface that because it's not his fault by any means but lots of times with our son I end up it's like a, a single parent rule so I have to I have to think about dropping him off picking him up and all that stuff which is great I don't mind it at all but it makes it tough to have a nine to five job in say Miami or something like that, because one geography, um, I'd have to leave really early in the morning <laughs> and then geography getting back, you know, we'd have to problems have solutions, right. But these problems would cost money. So just kind of decided to go the, uh, 1099 route, you know, do consulting, hop in on projects, help where I can, you know, maybe even a longer term thing if possible. And so I've done one of those. I had a one year contract. It was great. It was a great experience and whatnot and then the pandemic hit so now i'm kind of just picking up the pieces and seeing where i can where i can puzzle pieces so the pandemic in some ways has helped me because uh, i told people i can go anywhere you know for a week or two weeks and often you know because i can always get someone either a relative in to help with john if tavis is gone or whatever i just you know i just have to work from home and so this is kind of the whole pandemic thing of pieces kind of i think made it easier for me to translate that with people as to how i can contribute to their 
project. So right now I'm kind of a tweener. I'm in between. Which makes sense, especially with the pandemic and how it like it affects everything. And I think sometimes we don't think about like how far the ripple effects are. Yeah, so just enjoying where I live. I got dive certified while the pandemic was happening and trying to enjoy where I live kind of thing and, and all that good stuff. So And you also touched on something that I don't think I talk a lot about is being a reservist spouse and how you still have like the military takes precedence. I think sometimes think people think, oh, you're in the reserve, so the military is like on the back burner, but the reserve still requires a lot of commitment and a lot of sacrifice from, you have to have a supportive spouse to understand mm-hmm. like the, what the military asked for. And, and like you said, you don't mind it, but it's still something that you have to constantly, but it's like something I'm always constantly thinking about, like, oh, is my husband going to be here? Probably not. So I probably need to figure <laughs> out all the stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's the best challenge and the worst challenge at the same time. I mean, your spouse is serving our country and preserving freedom. And at the same time, it's like, oh, this is painful. <laughs> That's the hard part. And I didn't realize like, so flying up, uh, much like I'm sure some of the other technical aspects is definitely, what's the word? They have to, you know, they have to keep currencies and you can't do that in one weekend. Right. So even if they're a traditional reservist, the pilots and in, something until like I said people have to keep some sort of currency or if there's a project going on they're given a lot more than just one weekend a month two weeks a year because then there's things leading up to that and training to lead up to that and then the one you know the one good part is they only deploy every four years ish ish depending so we had a deployment back in what 2016 and now we're doing one right now and so it's been nice it's not been the normal activity and they're not as long so I, I definitely cannot complain about that at all uh, so that's, there's one value, you kind of can choose your own adventure type thing. Right. But yeah, it is, like you said, from the deployments aside, it's a little bit more of a time commitment than, than you probably think walking into it. I'm sure you can make it as minimal as you want and you can maximize it too. There's always, there's, we'll just say there's opportunities for both, yeah. <laughs> depending on, on which adventure you're choosing, but it is a little bit more. And, you know, sometimes it's tough to get into that routine of the one weekend a month, you know, the weekend before you want to rest up because you know you're going to work a 12 day 12 days ish 12 14 days in a row and then uh the weekend after you're exhausted and so I always feel like we have this one weekend one weekend a month where everybody's not tired (laughs) and we can go do something or do a project or or whatnot so that routine can wear on you a little bit but you know first world problems right so we we figure it out we manage it we go on trips try to you know we live in the keys you know we can't complain too much (laughs) (laughs) I really love talking to you and I want to end the interview with one last question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? Definitely worthwhile to consider, especially if you look back at the reasons I did between, you know, adventure and scholarship and service. And this scholarship doesn't mean just ROTC. There's, you know, tuition assistance for all ranks and patriotism, a sense of camaraderie. I'm still so, have such great friends in the, in the military and they, Oddly enough, end up stopping by even way down here a lot, which I love. And uh, definitely it's like a buoy. You always know you have have somebody. So I think, you know, from that emotional side, but I guess the advice I would give for um, people starting, you know, that have already made the choice they're going in is something I learned a little bit probably the hard way. And as I went, and I'm probably always still learning it is to set boundaries and then choose when you enforce them. You know, you don't always have to be the person who's like, you know, this is my boundary in front of everyone or and whatnot, you know, pick and pick and choose uh, how you establish boundaries between subordinates, 
peers, bosses, etc. But don't be afraid to set those. And when you don't, think constantly feeling feeling those those feelings, <laughs> anxiety or whatever you want to call it that goes with it because you didn't say anything. And then when it happens again, it just kind of worsens, will eat away at you. And especially when you're deployed. I mean, something I think I talked about in the post that I think you know is, is as a woman in the military, I felt very isolated when I deployed a lot. Sometimes I'd have other women there. Sometimes I would only have them there for a little bit. There'd be times, especially when I was in Afghanistan, where I'd be in a tent by myself and all the guys are all having fun and, and I was in the tent by myself. And if I wasn't a 60% extrovert, that would probably be okay. But I always kind of had a little bit of maybe FOMO or, or just kind of got lonely or really just having someone to talk about, talk, talk, because we talk. Um, but yeah, so boundaries and then pick and choose when you set them, that you should set them, even if, no matter what rank you are and what rank they are. Most people will appreciate that. And understanding uh, at the same time, appreciate when other people set boundaries. As a joint staff, I really was empowered to explain things and help with decisions at a very high level. You, again, you got to pick and choose when you when you explain things that someone might be going the wrong way or the emperor has no clothes on or this or that. But it is always of value to also be willing to wants to let you know where your blind spot is. Or one thing that I thought about this was one time I had to do a security investigation, but I also had to brave a three-star not want to fail on either one. And and what I failed to do was go talk to the immediate boss and say, hey, I, I don't think I can succeed at both of these if I try it at the same time because there's a deadline with the security. And the briefing's on a certain date and they were very close. And there's just not enough hours in the day. So a good job. I felt like I should have, that's what I should have done. I didn't. And I failed on one. Luckily, it wasn't a, uh, was not the three-star one. <laughs> three-star one went off of that hitch. The security one, we had to pass it off to somebody else. That wasn't a fun thing to do because if I'd gone to him, it would have been, let's pass that off to somebody else as opposed to we're taking that. And you're not succeeding either. So that's the truth of power piece too. Some derogatory comments and different things. I could, another time I can tell you a story about a picture that was put up on a wall of me that I had to walk into a bunch of, a room with a bunch of army lieutenant colonels and tell them to take it off, for example. And you had a day and a half to have the guts to do that. And then I say, focus on your successes. Certainly celebrate other successes. Put your personal feelings aside. Because we're all in one team. You know, there's reasons people get certain awards or certain promotions and different things and never know. We never know what's all behind that. What served me well it was always being just very proud of around me of, of their successes. And uh, it certainly made me feel good about any of mine or my failures. But it, those are the people that are going to get you through the harder times or if you're in, a, in that situation or, you know, just uh, trying to figure out life, like we're going to PCS next, you know, or something like mm-hmm. that. It's just... Just, I think it's important from my time as a force as young as to celebrate other people's successes. And Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm really glad that we got to do this interview and I'm excited to share it with everyone. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. 
Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Thank you.